Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of The Dana Buckler Show, where Jason had a chance to sit down and talk with Edward Zwick, a filmmaker whose body of work includes such notable movies as About Last Night, Glory, Legends of the Fall, Courage Under Fire, Blood Diamond, Defiance, and so many more. In this conversation, Jason focuses primarily on Edward's 2003 masterpiece, The Last Samurai, and along the way, Edward shares some details on his upcoming memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, which is set to be released in early 2024, and the book is now available for pre-order. In fact, there is a link in this episode's show notes where you can order the book. We want to extend a huge thank you to Edward for taking the time to chat, as he is to us one of the great American filmmakers, and his work has had a huge influence on both Jason and I. So please enjoy this conversation with filmmaker Edward Zwick. As I was mentioning, The Last Samurai is definitely in the top 10 of my all-time favorite movies. I was just curious if you can kind of give us a, a background on how you saw this movie coming out, your experiences going through the film, and you know, just kind of a, an overall what this movie means to you. Well, that's a question that would take about a week to answer, <laughs> um, because the movie was, it was two years in the making, um, and... I realize now, and this is very much in retrospect, that the very, very first screenplay I ever wrote when I was 24 years old was a story about a man who is stuck in uh, Tibet. Uh, actually, he's stuck, actually, he's in Korea. He's a soldier from Korea who is shell-shocked, and he is asked by his government, by the CIA at that point, to go into Tibet, where the Chinese are threatening to invade, and it's his job to try to help the Dalai Lama escape, which indeed uh, did happen in terms of the Dalai Lama escaping when the Chinese invaded in 1957. But the story uh, it involves him having uh, his plane crashing and he ends up in the Lamasery and he confronts Buddhism for the first time. And that is his only relationship to, uh, to The Last Samurai, except that it does talk about a Western man encountering um, the world of Eastern thought. And probably that was, I don't want to count how many years ago that was, but that is probably the, the, the way that, it, that I would say that it began in my imagination. But um, I think uh, in, in college, even before that, I'd read a book um, called The Nobility of Failure. And it was the story of Saigo Takamori. And that's the character on whom the Ken Watanabe character is based. It's the story of the the, the, Samur, the, the Satsuma rebellion against the, the Tokugawa shogunate, and and I really uh, was was enchanted by that story and remembered it um, only many years later when I reread that story um, in a book and thought, oh, this was the basis, an opportunity to to you know do a number of things that I'd wanted to do, in, including make a movie, you know, in the scale, if you will, of some of those great historical epics that I've always loved as a kid. Right. Um, and, and to combine that with what had been a love of, of samurai films, of, you know, obviously of the, not just Kurosawa, but, but all of the, you know, the baby cart movies and the, the, you know, Jim, the blind samurai movies. There've been so many and, 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 and I, I really enjoyed them always. So those things all 
all get thrown together in a pot and they start to stir. In this case, it's probably was stirring for 30 years. Um, but that's, that's really where it began. I, you know, began to do a lot of research about the history. It turns out there were the, the man who really went there and got involved with the, with the Japanese army was a Frenchman actually, but there were many Americans who'd gone there. More of them had gone there not to train troops. Some of them to some, there are many missionaries. There are some there were educators. And I thought that, that, um, because the Americans became so involved later with trying to, uh, you know, break into the Japanese economy, that that would be a, a fun premise for movies to imagine that man, you know, being an American um, rather than uh, the Frenchman that I think he really was probably. It was Jules Brunet. Anyway, that's the historical basis. But, you know, then when you get into the the making of a movie and the making of a movie of that scale, you're into a whole other kind of, of universe. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that unless Tom had agreed to do it, that I think I would have had a very difficult time actually getting the resources from the studio to make the movie. Oh, really? And wow. yeah, because it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing now when a movie does well and, and, and you can see the movie, but quite another to try to impose on the imagination of guys sitting in Burbank in their offices that this samurai movie is a good idea for American audiences. Um, that, that was a whole process unto itself. I had, I had first met Calm when I was about to do Legends of the Fall, and he read the script, and I actually spent time with him on the set in um, Wyoming when he was being far and away. And, and in fact, I realized I'd met him even earlier because when I my, made my very first movie, ah, it was called um, About Last Night, mm -hmm. and Tom had done those movies and grown up with Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez and all those guys as kids. And he came to visit the set one day. And this is really oh, wow. um, probably before the time of Risky Business or right around that time, maybe. Um, and... You know, so these things find their 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 entrails through all the you know paths of, of a career. In any case, um, I worked first on the script with a wonderful screenwriter, a man named John Logan. And John and I worked together for about a year. And um, John, you John wrote Gladiator. John has uh, written, oh gosh, he did the, he's written several musicals on Broadway like Moulin Rouge. He wrote. Um, uh, uh, yeah. I, I'm. He'll be upset that I won't I think it's name the, all of the it. Aviator too. Yeah, he's quite. He's quite well known, and, yes. and we had a very good working experience. And and then after after he completed his draft, it, it wasn't done, and he was committed to go off and make another movie. And so I took over by myself, and I started to write a draft. I think what I did probably, I think what I added was the sort of um, getting inside the character of Algren in terms of those journals. Um, I've read a lot of journals, a lot of things from the period. And uh, those, you know, those people who were trained at West Point were trained in a very particular way and writing in their journals was a very significant part of them. And there was a very, very clipped, dry kind of writing. And I thought that that would be interesting to see, to write that way and then to watch as that changed, as he changed. So in any case, I, I wrote it again and then we sent it to Tom and, 
and he, you know, believe it or not, uh, was interested, and we began to meet. And uh, he had you know, very good ideas about the script, and I think it appealed as well. I think it, the, I think the philosophical part appealed to him, and I think the physical part obviously appealed to him. Oh, absolutely. And and that's just how it began. And I think what's so brilliant about it too is, you know, you had mentioned that it's a combination of a French story, you know, it, it could be a several different people, but Tom Cruise's character coming from the American Indian wars and just absolutely ravished and wrecked emotionally. I think this, this story of redemption and what he does and where he goes with this character is just, it's amazing. Well, that's, that's, you're right. Because finding the analog to the, to the Indian wars was really helpful because it becomes a kind of a shorthand because you know, American audiences, certainly even world audiences, they know that story. And just the one scene was enough to really be a kind of, um, you know, kind of emblem right. of who the, what and had done and, and who he was. And, and, and that gives you a great deal as a leg up of starting your story in terms of characterization and backstory. That, that you don't have to then dwell on because you've got a lot of story and a lot of real estate to try to get to. Yes. And, and that's obviously where um, the, the, the thought of including that and then the history was right. The timing was right to, uh, to put that in, to start with that. Filming in this, I believe I've read that it took place in New Zealand. Is that correct? Well, we, we were through on three continents. We, we began in Japan and we were in Japan. We shot for two weeks. So amazing locations. The um, the place that is Katsumoto's um, his his, uh, his fortress is was a two thousand year old uh, monastery above a town called Himeji that could only be reached by a funicular. Um, and and the monks there actually have worked with us and fed us. It was quite <laughs> remarkable. That was our first day of shooting. Oh wow! And they were there for about a week, and then we went to several other places in Kyoto and. So we were uh, we were all over Japan for a couple of weeks, and then we came back to Burbank, and we built the the um, we built the the Tokyo streets there on the New York that was that was the, the rebuild of the New York Street, the famous New York Street at, at Warner Brothers. Oh wow! And and uh, so Lily Kilbert, who's this wonderful designer, um, did that, and um, then we also shot a. Uh, the escape, the, the escape from um, Katsumoto's house. And that is shot in a place called uh, the Lagoon. It's called Gilligan's Lagoon. It's where they want, used to shoot a television show called Gilligan's Island <laughs> that we, uh, on which we obviously built his home. Oh, wow. And That's yeah. amazing. I've got to ask, the, the, the final, actually the, the beginning and the final battle scenes, I don't think, I, I really can't recall a movie that's come out recently that has such realistic battle scenes in it. I mean, what did, what did you do to prepare for that? I mean, how did you, I mean, choreograph oh, well, that? I mean, I mean, the first, the first thing I think it's, I think it's because I had done glory mm. 10, 20, 20 years before that I had had at least some experience with what not to do, <laughs> um, the kind of mistakes to make or, or how to take advantage of some of the new technologies that existed actually. Um, we did not have. It's important to note with with, with, with this movie. Um, there's, a, we, there's no CG okay. in terms of none. Of that wow! Stuff. And and, and that, these are all real people, and they were people um, who we 
we trained hundreds of um, extras who were, you know, essentially young men who were already trained in martial arts. And we trained them to do certain fighting routines. And they, they would learn several routines. They, they'd learn the A side and the B side of a routine. And, and they could be mixed and matched. And, and, and that was always, that was the background, if you will, to these fights. But the, the middle ground and the foreground had to be trained for each shot. And uh, Nick Powell, the stunt coordinator, and I had to, it was quite ghoulish, think of all the creative ways that this, these um, combination of, of, of men would end up uh, confronting each other. In other words, certain, there were certain things having to do with muskets. There were certain things having to do with um, you know, uh, swords. There are certain things having to do with knives. Or there are certain things having to do hand to hand, and any number of other right. things. And and part of that is a is just a catalog that you've put together. But if it were just that, it would just be very boring. And the key was to find those elements that were particular to the characters, and more than that, that would be telling the story of what was happening at any one moment, which is to say the first, when you see the samurai come out of the fog, obviously it's a story of the lack of preparation of the Japanese army as compared to the to the mastery of right. the samurai. Yeah. But, you know, that's like any scene. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. The characters change, the story progresses, and you're using action as the means of communicating that instead of dialogue. Get to the final battle, you've come to know so many, so many of these individuals and so their stories, how they fight, what happens to them, um, is more important than any spectacular action. It's just, you contextualize it in the action and that gives it a, a grandeur and, and a scope that it's really, um, it elevates it. But what is really, what is really happening there is your emotional connection to those characters as you would have in any kind of a scene, um, and particularly any kind of a, of a, of a, of a fight. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember seeing this in the theater and not, you know, it's, it's 2003. So there's, I'm, I'm not really on the internet at that point. I don't know a whole lot of background of the, of the story. And I remember thinking, Hey, they're going, they're going to win. And then I see those Gatlin guns come out and it, it, it wrecked me. I remember just that was, openly weeping in the theater. That was always, yeah. That was always the kicker. That was always the, you know, I, I, I had done when I done legends of the fall. Um, I obviously had, you know, learned a lot about, uh, you know, what, what about those guns mm. and the introduction of guns like that and what that meant yeah. in the trench warfare. And then I was, it was quite remarkable to find out that the timing was right, that this was the time that those kind of weapons were introduced. And again, that becomes a metaphor. You've, you've spent so much time showing him trained to fight and what that means and what the fighting means to them. Um, philosophically and then what you to suddenly juxtapose that to this anonymous 
murderous, skillless machine. Right. That is telling the story again. Yeah, and it, it's bringing home that this was a a country and a culture that was losing who it was and who they identified with. And the Gatlin gun was a perfect metaphor, like you said, for that, that just everything is changing and it's, it's no longer art. It's just brutality. That's right. I think that's, uh, that's well said. Box office wise, this was a juggernaut in 2003. Yeah, we were, I mean, obviously it was, it was, it was uh, the thing that made that pleased me most is that it actually, I think until a couple of years ago, I think it's the, the movie that actually the, the 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 American movie that has performed best in the history of Japan, and that I found to be really gratifying because there was great anxiety about well, how would the Japanese respond to a white American filmmaker telling their story, and uh, they were unbelievably generous and uh, and obviously interested. I mean, the critical response from nearly everyone was just overwhelmingly loved this movie. Yeah, I would say the only place where it maybe wasn't, there were certain, and I think this is a very interesting um, part about America, that there's, there was starting to be some PC reaction to, uh, you know, something that could be perceived as a white savior narrative. And though, you know, I, the white, the last samurai is Ken Watanabe, I think that, that the, this, there was some uh, pushback that somehow this was, you know, Tom Cruise going to save the poor benighted Japanese, which is not what the story is. <laughs> it's actually the other way but, around. <laughs> but it, but in any case, um, I think that was the, the, you know, there's never, certainly in modern culture, there's never a time that you're not going to get slammed by somebody who has a website and a, uh, you know, and a laptop. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. After this, um, you take a couple of years off and work on the next just epic, the Blood Diamond or Blood Diamond. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it hadn't been my my plan that we, it had to be, a, 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 you know, another big movie. It's just as as it turned out, that was the, the thing that, that they interested me next. And the way to do it was on a certain scale. It was a different kind of scale. Yeah. It was a scale of size and locale and of um you know of uh, you know, um I, I guess the the historical part of it the, the current historical part of it made it very different um learning about a, a political circumstance um in another country about the exploitation of its resources about about the diamond business it, it was a global story if you will even though it's only set in you know mostly set only in Africa. So that gave it its scale in a different way, I think. Um, and, and, and the truth is, when I was done with that, it was like, thank you very much. I think I, I have done enough <laughs> monster movies for a while, but I wasn't done because Defiance came next. Defiance, and, right. Yeah. For me, that's a tough movie to watch because it's any, any movie, we were talking about this um, on one of our other podcasts, any movie that's based in history that is just I, I I can see how it happened. It's it's tough for me to watch, mm -hmm. but yeah, it, well, it should be. Tough for us. Yeah. Oh, I understand. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. It's um. But it but it in fact it also gives you something. Oh, it does. It, yeah. It gives you something that otherwise you might never have in a movie. We're talking about that when we were referencing the pianist and how just 
and how important that movie is, but because it's so important, it's so hard to watch as well. Yep. I think that's true. Yeah. Well, so um, if you don't mind me asking, what, what else do you have coming up? Well, uh, I, I, uh, I, about when COVID hit, we were just about to begin something and then it got shelved and I was sitting at home and I did something I'd never done before, which is I actually, I actually looked at some of my movies and, and I'm not the kind of person that is, that looks backward. I had not ever really sat down and looked at them because, you know, when you finish a movie, you're pretty sick of it, yeah. not sick of it, but you're, there's nothing about it you don't know. Right. And you've shown it at times and you've really used so much repetition to, to finish it. But to go back and look at some of these movies, once you get past the clunky exposition that you wish you'd done better or the, the moment of that camera move that was, that was, that was less than elegant than you wanted or those various things. What I was struck by was how many relationships and how many important relationships that they had meant and what they had meant to me and how each one marked a certain moment in my life. And I realized I was looking back over a lot of years and I started to write about it. I, I've always had journals. Okay. And I started to write a little bit in these journals. And before I knew it, I'd written about 100 pages. And <laughs> it, it had been, never been my intention to write um, a memoir. But I realized that at the same time, I'd done some things on Twitter where I had, oh, just for the heck of it, because I'd never done it, I'd put, in some, put some little anecdotes out there. And they'd gotten some, some lovely responses. And... I refuse to call it a book. I, refuse, I, I when I would write to my friends to say what I was doing, I, I would I would say B dash dash K, you know, in the way that, that uh, you know, religious people don't refer to God, that you're not allowed to write the name. Right. Um, and I thought that I was I was defying the gods by writing one. Um, although it is a kind of writing that I had done years before. I'd written my first job was writing for Rolling Stone, and I'd written some things for the New York Times, but there'd been many years ago. But then. I just, at a certain point, just committed to it, and I wrote this book, and I uh, sent it to a couple of uh, agents who were the agents of some very fancy writer friends of mine, and it was rejected. <laughs> it was rejected basically because they said, oh, well, you know, you're not famous enough to write a memoir. Oh. In other words, they couldn't put Matthew McConaughey's picture on the front of it, <laughs> uh, or they couldn't put... Um, somebody from the cast of Friends who had a problem, and that would be the book. And 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 I, I said, nah, I'm not going to be, you know, sort of uh, put off by this. And so what I did was, um, uh, I sent it to uh, to Simon Schuster, and uh, an editor there read it, and that next morning made a preemptory offer uh, because they saw in it, I think that it was a book about um, not just me, because I am a sort of a central thread, but it's in fact about some number of very um, uh, significant moments over the course of these years, what film meant, what it has come to mean. But more than that, and I think this is their reason for liking it a lot, it includes some, some pretty, I think, um, uh, profound sketches of people that I think a lot of people would like to know more about. My, my relationship with, with these actors has been very intense. Um, some of them I've worked with multiple times. The process that is hidden from the audience, the 
the inside baseball, if you were, the the story of how these movies actually happen. Um, what is the, what are the intensities that take place um, that never are make it on the screen? Uh, the the fights, the the the. The, the silliness, the affairs, the the, the friendships, the the uh, uh, you know the struggles. The, these these things are um, they're little movies unto themselves. Right. And each one had a kind of moral lesson to it about what it meant to work with your heroes, what it meant to be disillusioned by your heroes, what it meant to um, be intimidated and. Also, what it what it what does it mean to have a career that includes failure, uh, failure at a great scale, and how do you come back from that, and how do you deal with the um, anxiety of of all that, oh, and yeah. also what does it do to have a career that obliges you to sacrifice certain things having to do with home and family, having to do with your health, having to do with your you know your 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 mental state, and and finally. What does it mean trying to be an artist in the midst of a universe that is controlled by commercial considerations? Yeah. And because unless you can, uh, you know, end up doing well by doing good, um, you're not going to get to do it again. And so you're in, in, in a, uh, always on a razor's edge of serving yourself and serving um, the bosses, the suits and, and, you know, the money. So anyway, it all came together in this book that now a lot of people seem to be very excited by the name of the book is, is hits flops and other illusions. And, uh, it's, it is available now on pre-order. The book's not going to come out till the, after the first of the year, but, uh, you can go on Google and Google hits flops and other illusions, and it'll direct you to a link where you can you know pre-order the book and then it'll be in your, local bookstore if there is such a thing as a local bookstore near where you live because there are fewer of them these days and um i think as many people will be able to find it you know the various sites online um and uh yeah and i'll be going around the country doing a book tour and just selling them one at a time and you know across the country because that's what you do with books these days but it, it it's proven to be really fun um because it's reconnected me with a lot of people that i wanted to reconnect with relationships that, that otherwise I would never have had um, the opportunity to to reestablish and to write about them and to talk to them about what we went through. And uh, that was uh, equally important to me to have a kind of a kind of retrospect. There is one phrase that, that, that uh, is not mine. I think it was a nice in. And she said um, uh, to, to write memoir is to taste your meal twice. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Isn't that a nice well, way? I, and it was I like an opportunity that. <laughs> to really re-experience certain things, and uh, so I, I, I was able to do that. But but that was, then there, and then by the way, there was the writer strike. I was able to finish it. Now it's it's done, and and it's in the hand of the publishers. And now Marshall and I are working very hard on on a couple of different things. We we, we were adapting a Stephen King novel called Billy Summers. We're we're doing that for Leonardo DiCaprio and J.J. Abrams. Oh wow! We're um. We're, uh, there's still talk of, of rebooting 30 something, uh, 30 years later about what it is to, uh, for those characters' children. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple other things that we're doing. So we're, we're back at work and, and happy about it because obviously this strike was very difficult and painful for a lot of people. But I think ultimately 
I pray ultimately will prove to be worthwhile. We had planned on going out to uh, to L.A. and canceled our trip just because of the writer's strike. And we're very much hoping that everybody got what they deserved and really should have been recognized for before. Yeah, well, it was it was existential. Yes. It was existential about the future of being a writer and and and, and the business. Yes. And so, uh, yes, I, I that is the general feeling <clears throat> is that it it it, it, it was that um, you know time will tell because the business just keeps changing and then no sooner do you fix one thing than the wheels fall off <laughs> in another place. You know. I know the feeling of that. I absolutely appreciate your time today. Your contribution to cinema is just, it's its meant the world to me. And the, the films that you've been a part of mean so much to me. And I just, I, I thank you for being on our podcast and allowing me to, to pick your brain a little bit. Well, it's, it's, it, it is, um, it is my pleasure. Obviously, you know what you're talking about. And that's, that, that's what makes it um, fun is when you're talking to somebody who um, is inside and, and passionate about the process. So, um, so thank you. It was a pleasure. And uh, by the way, when you, when, when the book comes out or get your ass on, on, on Google right now and go, go order a copy. I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> All right. Listen, this is really fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your time. All right. Bye. Bye.